Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. G'day everyone and welcome to 2023. Can you believe we're heading into the fourth year of this podcast? I can't, but then again, I had very low expectations when I began this thing. So hopefully you all had a wonderful holiday season and have recovered sufficiently to attack a new year. Now, I know in the past I may have stated grand plans at the start of the year, and you may or may not have noticed, they mostly don't happen. So this time around, I'm going to say that we may, or may not, get that second podcast off the ground, focusing on just the Australian involvement in World War I, the first. We may, or may not, get some sort of Patreon thing off the ground. And we may, or may not, do some other stuff as well. You may have noticed one small change already, a bit of a change in format. I can assure you that this is only because I wanted to freshen things up a bit and has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that upon transferring files to my shiny new laptop, the aforementioned files somehow got irretrievably corrupted. I can unequivocally state that that did not happen, so long as nobody looks too far into it. Actually, I think it's more to do with those files referencing other files which are buried somewhere in the deep, dark depths of the old computer. Either way, a change is as good as a holiday, so they say. So I reckon she's time to kick on and get into 2023 with the first episode of the year, being one I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Most Australians are aware of most of the great stands made by Australian forces. Tobruk, Longtan, Kokoda, and maybe even Pillars of Retno. But there's one stand which has gone largely unknown by the general population, but which was just as inspiring and hard-fought as all those others. But it also had a major impact on the outcome of the conflict. It was a forgotten part of what became known as the Forgotten War. It was the Battle of Kapyong Valley, fought in April 1951 during the Korean War. Back in the episode on Pak Shon, I covered the events leading up to the war and the opening moves. We then covered Australia's opening battles. Now, with the war entering another dangerous phase from the UN point of view, we'll now have a squeeze at a fight which I reckon has to rate in the top five, if not the top three, of the greatest actions by any Australian unit in our history. So, by late 1950, the Chinese were good to go again, and they began their push south. The Chinese People's Volunteer Force, the CPVF, under veteran commander General Peng Duhai, opened their second great offensive. Crossing from China into North Korea, the CPVF inflicted serious losses on the UN troops, and those forces were left in a vulnerable position and had little choice but to turn around and head back south. Never ones to admit defeat, the U.S. Marines, located at the Chosin Reservoir, decided to attack in a different direction. And that direction was south, all the way back to Hung Nam, on the eastern coast, but still north of Pyongyang. Two full-strength Chinese armies attacked the Marines in December and succeeded in forcing them from North Korea, but at a heavy cost. By early January 1951, Seoul was once again in Chinese and North Korean hands. Fortunately, that didn't last too long, and by 14th of March 1951, UN forces had once again liberated the city. But, as you can imagine, by this time, it's a city only in name. 
the fighting back and forth had inflicted a massive amount of damage and the inhabitants were living among the rubble. But at least now they were on the right side of the front line. It was about this time that MacArthur's ego would get him sacked. At the beginning of April 1951, in response to the Chinese involvement, MacArthur wanted to bomb targets in China. Truman was concerned about what that could unleash. MacArthur dug in, but so did Truman. MacArthur forgot that he was merely a general in the American army. His place was to follow the orders of the American commander-in-chief, i.e. the president. On 11th of April, Truman had had enough and fired MacArthur, giving command to Lieutenant General Matthew Ridgway. A move which probably saved a lot of American lives. Ridgway was a completely different commander to MacArthur and didn't believe in sustaining unnecessary casualties. In March and April of 1951, the Chinese came on again and met with more success. But in April, it had been decided that the 27th Brigade, with three RAR, would move back and take a bit of a breather around the Kapyong Valley, so they weren't involved in facing the Chinese in this opening onslaught. They were, however, on three hours' notice to move, should anything untoward occur. Then, something spooky occurred. The North Koreans and Chinese broke contact with the forward elements of the UN forces. For a force which had stubbornly fought for every inch of ground either lost or taken, to just pull back and see the huge swathe of territory without a fight just didn't seem right. Many of those in command were wondering if this was a planned move to enable them some room to reorganise and prepare for a major offensive. While the brass was pondering this problem, the British government pondered relieving the 27th Brigade. They had been fighting hard for nearly seven continuous months and were just about buggered. The plan was for the British units, the Argyles and the Middlesex, to be replaced by the King's own Scottish Borderers and the King's Shropshire Light Regiment. You know, I sometimes think to myself, self, it would be great if Australian regiments had fancy-sounding names like the Poms do. But then, after saying things like the Argyles and the Middlesex were replaced by the King's own Scottish Borderers and the King's Shropshire Light Regiment, I suddenly find myself thinking, self, three RAR will do me just fine. Anyway, whereas the Pommie battalions were about to be replaced as whole units, 3RAR went for an individual rotation system whereby the individual soldier was relieved after serving 12 months. It's interesting to compare the unit rotation and the individual rotation system, so bear with me for a brief diversion. It's difficult to make a decent comparison in the context of the Korean War because the mobile phase didn't last particularly long and when things settled into a situation reminiscent of the World War I trenches, it probably didn't make a lot of difference to the outcome. But where the differences did become apparent was in Vietnam. The Americans used the individual rotation system, whereas the Australians rotated battalions in and out. The benefit of the battalion system became apparent because the unit retained what is known as institutional memory. The experience which the battalion gained on its tour remained with the battalion as it trained and prepared for its next tour, so that when they were once again in Vietnam, they were prepared to hit the ground running. By contrast, the American individual rotation system meant that because the unit stayed in country, there was no institutional memory back in America where the replacements were being trained. This meant when they arrived in country, they had to learn the ropes from scratch. David Hackworth was a colonel at the time of Vietnam, but started life as a private with the occupation forces of Italy and was battlefield commissioned in Korea. In stating what went wrong for the Americans in Vietnam, he identified the individual rotation system as being part of the problem. He said, we weren't in Vietnam for 10 years, we were in Vietnam for one year, 10 times. So anyway, it's worth pondering whether three RAR's experience with the individual system in Korea played any part in the decision to adopt the unit rotation system in Vietnam. And now, to get back on track. The 27th Brigade wasn't the only unit experiencing a bit of a reshuffle. 
Ridgeway was, at this point, still the 8th Army's commander, and he was planning an offensive into the Iron Triangle. But the withdrawal of the Communist forces also convinced him to plan a fighting withdrawal should his concerns about a Communist offensive come true. Planning for this was underway when MacArthur got the boot, and Ridgeway left the building to go take MacArthur's place. Lieutenant General James Fleet took over from Ridgeway on the 14th of April. Just quickly, because I know some of the purists, like myself, will cringe at the pronunciation of Lieutenant. We all know the correct pronunciation is Lieutenant. But when referring to Americans of rank which includes that word, I'll go with the American pronunciation and pronounce it correctly for all other nationalities, Okay. Before Ridgeway departed, he told Van Fleet not to press any further beyond the Wyoming line without his approval. He was still concerned about this possible enemy offensive. He was confident of success, but there was just that nagging doubt that worried him. On the 21st of April, Van Fleet launched his offensive. As sometimes happens in war, when conditions, such as phases of the moon, weather, etc., are favourable for one side to attack, it is also favourable for the other side to launch their own attack, if that is indeed in their plans. It happened to the Australians at the Battle of Brinsound Ridge in World War I, when they advanced into a German attack coming the opposite way. Kind of awkward, but the Australians got the better of that exchange. Not so for Van Fleet. On the night of the 22nd of April, as things seemed to be going well, his forces met a much larger communist force coming the other way. In all, nearly 700,000 troops were pushing forward in two columns, the main one heading for Seoul and another pushing into the centre sector. Total UN forces in the area numbered 418,000, including support troops. If ever there was a time for a change of underpants, this was it. I could ramble on about the fighting which developed over the next day or so, but Australians weren't involved at this point, and this episode is going to be quite lengthy as it is, so I'll just summarise it thusly. Basically, the Americans, British of the 29th Brigade and Republic of Korean troops, put up a credible defensive effort, but it was hopeless. They stood in the way of the Communists' most powerful punch to date, and despite their best efforts, there was nothing for it but to make a hasty departure. Unfortunately, a group of Gloucesters from the 29th Brigade were cut off and surrounded. A relief column was sent in to try and reach them, and one of them described the scene, quote, It was a shambles. Rifles and equipment lay scattered everywhere among burnt-out carriers and smoulding trucks. Dead Englishmen lolled beside shattered steering wheels, and rows of holes in the vehicles showed the line of the enemy machine gun fire. Short Chinese cartridge cases littered the area. Dead men lay in profusion, sightless eyes staring up at the sky. It was definitely depressing. The thought occurred, that dead man, but for the grace of God, is me. There was not a single enemy body. It is nerve-wracking to see only your own dead, for it gives the impression of a disastrous defeat. Of course, the Reds had removed their own dead, as they always did. End quote. The relief column was also defeated, and the Gloucesters were left to fight it out for themselves. As the front line disintegrated, a large column of civilians and defeated UN troops clogged the roads, heading south. This was an opportunity too good for the Communists to ignore. One relevant event from all this retreat, as far as the Capyong Valley is concerned, is the 16th New Zealand Field Regiment. Unlike the rest of the 27th Brigade, they hadn't been sent back to rest at Capyong. So when the Communists attacked, the NZ artillery was caught up in the defence. They put in a solid performance in support, but with the Republic of Korean forces crumbling in front of them, they had no choice but to save the guns and fall back. They took up positions behind the Australians at Capyong and readied themselves for more work. Disguising themselves as refugees, hundreds of North Korean troops joined the columns and were able to pass through into the rear echelons of the UN forces. This column of humanity made its way along the road which passed through the Kapyong Valley. 
Up in the hills to the east of the valley, three RAR dug in as best they could on the rocky ground and watched the parade pass below. In the hills on the western side of the valley, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry were also settling in. These two battalions, watching on as a defeated army passed beneath them, must have wondered what was about to descend on them. Nothing travels faster in the army than a rumour, and the rumours must have been flying thick and fast by this stage. The scene was set for the Battle of Capiong Valley. Geez, it took a while to get here, didn't it? But I think it was necessary to cover off on what brought us to this point, and at least now you have a bit of context. So now, on with the main event. The Australians had been enjoying a bit of R&R behind the lines, enjoying a beer ration and even some movies that had been brought up. One of these movies was interrupted when one digger flicked his cigarette butt away, only to have it land near a full petrol can which was being used to hold up a plank being used as a seat. She went up nicely by all accounts, but no one was hurt. On the morning of the 23rd of April, 3RAR was ordered to make preparations for the defence of Capion. The town itself lay on one of the main east-west roads in the region, and so was vital for the free movement of troops. Company commanders made their reconnaissance while the troops were making preparations for a little Anzac Day commemoration. An invitation had even been extended to the Turkish troops serving with the UN. Funny how things work out, eh? In 1915, they were tearing each other apart. In 1951, they're fighting on the same side and preparing to remember 1915 side by side. The area chosen by a brigade for the defence of Capyong was about 6 kilometres north of the town, near where the Capyong River, flowing from the north, met up with a small stream coming in from the northeast. On the right flank, looking north, was a series of hills rising nearly 600 metres to Hill 677, while on the right flank the hills rose to 400 metres on Hill 504. The main trouble, from the brigade point of view, was that these two features were about 7 kilometres apart, too wide for a brigade to form a solid line. To make matters worse, the Argyles had headed home and their replacements hadn't arrived and the Middlesex were forward of the position with the New Zealand gunners, who hadn't arrived back yet. Brigadier Burke had at his disposal only 2nd Battalion of Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry and the lads from 3RAR. The Canadians went to the left and the Australians to the right and began to prepare their positions during the late afternoon of the 23rd of April. It's important at this point that you don't get the image of a continuous line of trenches in those positions facing the likely approaching route of the enemy. These positions were a series of hills, with some facing one way, others facing another way, with small gullies and re-entrance between them, so that on the Australian side, the companies were assigned to hold certain hills with no actual point of contact with other companies. Nor were the positions which they had dug anywhere near similar to the images of trenches you'd have seen from World War I or fighting pits from World War II. The ground on these hills consisted of a few inches of topsoil and a mostly rock substrata. It simply wasn't possible to dig a six-foot hole for a soldier to stand in. So they dug down as far as they could, then set about gathering rocks to build up a sanger in front of their holes. Another disadvantage faced by the Australians was an order from Brigadier Burke to control the retreat of the ROK troops. He wanted to prevent a panic rout, and so he ordered the 3RR commander, Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Ferguson, to position his headquarters company on the road down in the valley behind the company positions. This meant he was almost two kilometres back from his companies. They had radios, but radios only work effectively on line of sight. In that terrain, getting messages from the rear to the forward platoons would require a relay of radio messages. If Ferguson had been allowed to position his headquarters on high ground, much of this problem could have been alleviated. This also meant he had to coordinate the operations of headquarters company in controlling the ROK retreat, while at the same time trying to control the battle up in the hills. So by now, you should be getting the impression that this is not a great defensive setup. Shallow holes for the troops, disjointed company positions... 
poor communication and Italian headquarters with divided attention. As far as strong defensive positions are concerned, this ain't one of them. On the upside, and it was a very shallow upside, the 27th Brigade did have the support of some American armour and artillery. Two companies of US Mortar Battalion were sent to support the Canadians, while the Australians enjoyed the company of A Company of the 72nd Tank Battalion, which brought 15 Sherman tanks to the party. It wasn't much, but better than nothing. For those who are listening to this with the luxury of access to Intergoogle, now would be a good time to have a look at the map on the website, australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com. But for those who don't, I shall now explain the positions of the companies. Imagine, if you will, a line on a slight diagonal, running from northwest down to just under southeast. In the northwest point, we have B Company under Captain Lachlan. They're positioned on a hill which rises about 40 metres from the road, which runs to the south of their position. Lachlan deployed his troops on the southern end of the ridge, with a machine gun section in the centre, near the middle of the hill. The American tanks were deployed down near the road in front of B Company. A Company was next. Major O'Dowd deployed his first platoon on the lower slopes of the main ridge on the eastern side of the valley, and then Company Headquarters, a machine gun section, and then 3 Platoon and 2 Platoon on the highest position. 2 Platoon's commander, Lieutenant Brumfield, had only joined the platoon the day before. Maybe that's why they were placed further up the hill. A Company's deployment was quite handy. Each platoon could fire in support of the other platoons as well as covering the approaches to B Company. Almost directly south of A Company was C Company. C Company's main task was to be the counter-attack force should A or B Company get into serious trouble. C Company was under the command of Captain Reg Saunders, who, as you will no doubt remember from last episode, was the first Indigenous Australian to be commissioned in the field during the fighting in New Guinea in World War II. In Korea, he was the first Indigenous officer to command a company in combat. C Company's position covered the road and the crest of the ridge between A and D Companies, should the Communists choose that option. And then there was D Company under Captain Gravner, down at the southeastern point of the line. Technically, on the same spur as A Company, there was a 400 metre gap between the two companies. It did provide a good field of fire across the ground leading up to A Company. So, I hope that wasn't too confusing. Daylight began to fade, and as darkness approached, so did the first South Korean soldiers falling back. There was still no real indication that the front was collapsing, and Ferguson did his best to ensure an orderly progress for the Koreans. The first real inkling of what was coming their way was from 3 RER's intelligence sergeant, Colin McGregor. He went to speak to the Koreans to get the good word, and asked to look at their maps. What he saw were a bunch of red arrows all pointing south. It didn't bode well. The trickle of refugees became a torrent after dark. Many soldiers just hung around with no officers to direct them where to go. Some vehicles broke down and clogged up the road, and the occasional slow-moving ox cart added to the congestion. Fearful of what might happen if they were captured wearing ROK uniforms, many of the troops discarded theirs and their equipment, leaving it on the road as they passed. One good thing at this point was the arrival of the 16th New Zealand Field Regiment and the Middlesex Battalion. They took up their positions behind 3 RAR, but the support they were able to provide was limited. Not having had the time to examine the positions and mark the locations on their maps, they couldn't be sure where the Australian platoons were and where they weren't. At the very least, the occasional boom of an artillery piece would have some psychological advantage. Now, remember those communist troops I mentioned who were mingling with the refugees? Well, by late evening, they had begun to work their way behind and around B Company, cutting them off from the other companies. As the full moon rose around 9.15pm, the battlefield was illuminated and the fighting kicked off in earnest. The first Chinese attack was aimed at the outermost platoon of tanks. This was beaten off, but an hour later, having established the rough dispersal of the tanks, a much heavier attack was made, 
The problem for the American tank troops was a requirement for their commanders to stick their heads out of the tank in order to see what the enemy were doing. But with no surrounding infantry to provide covering fire, the Chinese had nice round targets to shoot at. The platoon commander, Lieutenant Di Martino, was killed and three other tank commanders wounded. Before he died, Di Martino ordered the tanks to make a fighting withdrawal. When they started their engines, the 2IC of B Company, Lieutenant Young, ran down the road to convince the tanks not to withdraw. But he took off so quickly that he forgot to take his weapon with him. He managed to catch the last tank and persuaded them to stay, promising to get their wounded out via a jeep. Young recorded what happened next. The tank skipper then asked where we wanted him to stop and block. A rather indefinite wave of the arm on my part was not sufficient for him. He wanted to be guided to his position. That left me posted, so I marched ahead of the tank north along the road. By this time, an American mortar FFO, forward fire officer, accompanied by a negro carrying his wireless set, had joined us. The FFO was looking for our A company and wanted guiding. After walking for about 50 yards, with the tank grinding along behind us in the dark, I saw a movement in the shadow of a bank on the right side of the road towards A Company. There was moonlight on the road itself. Thinking that ROK troops were still skulking there, I called out Idiawa, anglicised Korean, for come here. A train of sparks flying through the air towards me was the answer. I dived for the ditch on the left of the road. The FFO and his wireless men went for the hill towards A Company. The tank driver immediately put his vehicle into reverse gear and went backwards. The grenade burst harmlessly on the road. I was now reasonably sure that the Chinese were with us and against us. As I lay in the ditch, the Chinese Communist force literally ran over me after the tank down the road. They flung a few grenades in my direction but did no harm beyond singeing my moustache and hair. I lay quiet for some time whilst the noise of the pursuit faded south, then I cautiously made my way back to B Company lines. Lieutenant Young was a lucky lad. Now, with the American tanks successfully out of their way, the Chinese could concentrate on the Australian infantry positions. Things were about to get serious. Suspecting that the Chinese were massing, Captain Lachlan called in an artillery strike on the area where the tanks had been. The barrage fell across the valley between and in front of B and A Company. A small group of Chinese managed to infiltrate B Company's position but were soon driven out. An outpost on the northern end of B Company's position reported another mass of enemy at around 11pm. Artillery fire was directed in that direction, but the outpost was soon attacked by about 30 Chinese. Not wanting to risk losing those men, Lachlan ordered them to break contact and fall back to the main position. It was obvious B Company was about to cop a major attack. Just before 1am, it came in. 4 Platoon was on the receiving end, but managed to inflict heavy casualties on the attackers over the following hour. Failing in that attempt, the Chinese then launched a feint attack against 5 Platoon before falling on 6 Platoon in strength. The attack was pushed forward with determination and managed to penetrate 6 Platoon's perimeter, but counterattacks managed to hold them. Lance Corporal Parry took control of these counterattacks and skillfully deployed his troops and coordinated their fire. He was awarded a military medal for his actions. But the Chinese weren't done yet. As dawn was breaking at about 4.45am, they threw in a final attack against B Company. This too was thrown back and with daylight now flooding the valley, the Chinese were exposed in the open and a heavy artillery fire was unleashed on them. They withdrew, leaving hundreds of dead behind them. While B Company was having a tough night, A Company was also fighting hard. The first attack against A Company was thrown in against one platoon on the western flank at about 9.30pm. Three other major attacks crashed upon the one platoon position over the next three hours, but they held on. The enemy soldiers charged up the hills with bugles calling orders. NCOs directed men where to attack, but under these circumstances it was obvious who the leaders were and one platoon picked them off. But there were always others to take their place. 
The Chinese just kept coming, throwing grenades while the Australians replied with machine guns, rifles and their own grenades. Chinese were mown down, but still kept on coming. They were, however, inflicting casualties on one platoon, and the constant pressure made it difficult to relocate troops to cover the gaps left behind by killed or wounded men. It appeared that the Chinese could afford to lose all those men, but one platoon couldn't. The platoon was reduced from 30 fighting men to just 13. Lieutenant Gardner was ordered to withdraw his men at 1am and to take up a new position between 3 and 2 platoon. Captain O'Dowd, meanwhile, had even more on his plate. Due to his position, he had to coordinate all of the four rifle companies, not just his own A company. Communications to battalion headquarters had been cut, and as radar could only work with line of sight, Ferguson, a battalion, had no direct contact with the forward companies, and as he was soon under attack as well, it was left to O'Dowd to do his best to control the battle. The poor positioning of battalion headquarters was starting to have its effect. With one platoon now out of the way, the next Chinese assault fell onto three platoon at around 4.30am. But the attack wasn't as heavy as those sustained by one platoon. Either the Chinese had decided they couldn't sustain those kinds of casualties, or they were probing forward to find the next target. When dawn broke, A Company received something of a nasty shock when they discovered that Chinese troops had infiltrated the gap between one and two platoons. This put the Chinese into a position where they could see directly into one and three platoons and company headquarters. Two platoon couldn't do a lot to discourage the Chinese because the rocks and steep dip in the ridgeline provided the enemy with perfect cover from two platoons fire. The Chinese quickly cottoned on to the importance of where they'd landed and started blowing whistles to call for reinforcements to their position. Whenever one or three platoon tried to move into better firing positions, they attracted a hail of fire and suffered heavy casualties. At about 6am, Lieutenant Brumfield ordered a small patrol under Corporal Everly to attempt to make contact with company headquarters. As the patrol worked their way down a spur, they stumbled across some of the Chinese who had been making life uncomfortable for them. Both sides were surprised by the encounter, but the Australians reacted quicker and managed to kill six of the enemy for the loss of one of their own. This action broke the Chinese hold on the position and A Company's troubles were relieved. So far, A Company had suffered 50 casualties, but O'Dowd wasn't happy with having lost some of his ground, so he ordered three platoon, under Lieutenant Mulry, to retake the ground which the Chinese had taken from one platoon. Fortunately, the Chinese had pulled back and the ground was reoccupied without a fight. The withdrawing Chinese in front of A Company now experienced the same problem as those in front of B Company. They were withdrawing over open ground in now broad daylight. As O'Dowd put it, the situation rather resembled sitting in the middle of a wheat field at dawn, potting rabbits as they dashed hither and thither. End quote. For C and D Companies, that first night was somewhat quieter than for A and B. D Company went undisturbed until about 4am and even then it was only six Chinese soldiers who came to have a look at their perimeter. At about 5am, company headquarters shot one enemy soldier and 10 platoon captured another. C Company only faced one attack during the night and only by a small force. Their main concern during the night were mortar bombs which had been aimed at A Company, overshooting the mark and landing in the C Company's area. As daylight grew, they could see the same Chinese troops that B Company had held off during the night, withdrawing over open ground. They soon joined B Company in shooting into their retiring enemy. A small group of disoriented Chinese were seen by C Company, who took a few pot shots, convincing them to surrender, while the others chose to hide. So that's how things went for the forward companies on the night of the 23rd-24th of April. But some of the most confused and occasionally desperate fighting of the night occurred at battalion headquarters. Remember them? They were down on the road, initially trying to ensure the ROK troops withdrew in an orderly fashion. That was obviously a failure but Brigade's decision to place them down on the road meant that the Chinese troops, who had mingled with the retreating throng, were now behind battalion headquarters 
and had effectively surrounded them. And just to clear up something which may become confusing, Headquarters Company and Battalion Headquarters, both of which I shall be mentioning, are actually two different entities during this fight. Headquarters Company consists of all the support elements of the battalion, such as the engineers, MPs, etc., and they were under the command of Captain Gergi. Battalion Headquarters is the actual command post of the battalion where the commander, Lieutenant Colonel Ferguson, worked to control the four infantry and one support company. Clear as mud? They were given some hope though. The American tanks, which had chosen to withdraw from B Company's area, less the one which Lieutenant Young had waylaid, showed up at Ferguson's headquarters. After taking stock of his losses, Lieutenant Koch decided to send two of those tanks to the rear with the dead and wounded on board, with orders to return forthwith with fresh personnel. Koch's other two tanks were ordered to join up with the tanks of two platoon. So at least Ferguson had some armoured support. The problem with tanks, though, is in a largely static fight, they make very good focal points for attack, standing out in nice big silhouettes above the ground like they tend to do. And that proved to be the case here. The Chinese were drawn to them and attacked hard with grenades and satchel charges and the occasional rocket. One rocket scored a direct hit, killing the loader instantly and mortally wounding the commander. The other tanks managed to fight off the charging enemy, but they were so busy fighting for their own lives that they were unable to offer any real support to the Australian infantry. That infantry had only been sent into that location a matter of hours before. They had had little to no time to construct defensive positions, being more occupied with trying to sort out the retreating column. The best they could manage were a few shallow scrapes in the ground or to take advantage of a creek bed or a natural depression in the ground here and there. Hardly what you'd wish for if given any choice in the matter. The four defences of battalion headquarters consisted of the light section of the machine gun platoon, the assault pioneer platoon and the regimental police. Now for anyone who has ever wondered why the army likes to say people are soldiers first and specialists second, this is why. The fortunes of war have a nasty habit of putting people who wouldn't ordinarily be in the front line smack bang in the middle of it. That's why anyone who wears the uniform is trained as a soldier first and then trained in whatever specialist role they may choose. The forward defences were hit hard as waves of Chinese troops attacked. Under the weight of the onslaught they had little choice but to pull back. Two members of the light machine gun section were killed with four wounded while the MPs had several wounded. The commander of the machine gun section ran up to a nearby tank and ordered it to fire on the roadblock and houses in the village. The Chinese were using the houses as cover while firing into the headquarters position. The fire from the tank soon quietened them down a bit. In one house, 40 dead Chinese were counted. Another Chinese force probed the rear of battalion headquarters in the vicinity of the gun positions. Lieutenant Colonel Moody recognised pretty quickly that the position was undefendable and moved his guns to a position near the village of Charaday. It took until 3am for the move to be completed and 4am before the guns came into action. By comparison to all other sub-units of the battalion, headquarters company, as opposed to battalion headquarters, had a fairly quiet night. They could hear Chinese troops moving past them a couple of hundred metres away, but those troops were heading towards their battle against battalion headquarters. At around 11pm, Captain Gurky of headquarters company lost contact with Ferguson at battalion. He sent a couple of blokes out on foot to contact battalion and sort out what was happening. They came back an hour later with a jeep and trailer full of ammunition that was supposed to be taken up to A and B companies. It turned out the driver of the jeep had met with an American tank crew who had been destroying houses occupied by the Chinese. They had been told to return to battalion but got waylaid by a Chinese force and had eventually ended up with headquarters company. Too bad for A and B companies who didn't get their hoped for supply of ammunition. While all that was happening, Gurky was disturbed by the complete lack of noise coming from B company of the 2nd US Chemical Heavy Mortar Battalion which was deployed nearby. He figured he'd better find out what was going on over there. 
so he sent this company sergeant major for a look. When the CSM arrived, all he saw were some of the mortars still in position and the company's vehicles packed up and ready to move. But no troops. Apparently, they had abandoned their position and found somewhere a bit safer to hang out about 16 kilometres away to the east. And that was pretty much how headquarters company spent the night. By early morning, back at battalion headquarters, Ferguson was growing concerned about his position. He contacted Brigadier Burke for reinforcements and Burke sent A Company of the Middlesex Regiment who had just arrived from the south. But without any artillery support, the Middlesex were unable to break through the Chinese cordon and they too headed off to the east where the American mortarmen had gone. Ferguson's other concern was for his regimental aid post across the road from his headquarters. Although they weren't being directly targeted, their proximity to HQ made it a particularly uncomfortable place to be. The medical officer, Captain Beard, did the best he could under the conditions with limited resources and in almost complete darkness. Eventually, as the sun rose, Ferguson knew he had little option but to withdraw his headquarters. The Chinese had put in another strong attack and most of the machine gun section and the engineer platoon had been killed or wounded. The Chinese now held the high ground overlooking headquarters and could fire directly into the position. Ferguson told Beard to pack up his RAP and move south towards the Middlesex Regiment. They managed to achieve this without loss which is an amazing achievement by Beard and his staff. They were aided greatly by Captain Bennett of the Mortar Platoon, who fought hard against the Chinese attack and brought the focus of the Chinese onto themselves and gave the medics a chance. But it must also be said that under the circumstances, the Chinese could have picked off the medical staff at will, if they so desired. That the ROP got away without casualty owes as much to the Chinese honouring the Red Cross as it did to any other factor. By 6am, the main headquarters group was ordered to withdraw with the support of American tanks. It took nearly three hours to complete, but the tanks kept the Chinese at bay. Occasionally, the Australians had to jump off their vehicles and fight off small Chinese attacks. And at one point, a mortar landed close to Ferguson's vehicle, blowing a wheel off but leaving Ferguson uninjured. HQ eventually made it back to the Middlesex perimeter and attempted to re-establish contact with the scattered battalion units. So I reckon that's a good place to leave things for this episode. The situation as it stands can be roughly summarised thusly. The four infantry companies are still in position after a hard night's fighting, but they've taken some heavy casualties. Headquarters company is still pretty much where they were at the start of the night, but with ammunition which was destined for A and B companies, and headquarters company had been forced back. To see how things go from here, please tune into the next episode where we'll cover the events of the next phase of the fight and to see if we can figure out what impact this battle had on the greater direction of the war. Until then, Take it easy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 